Well, good morning, Fellowship Greenville. My name is Jim, and I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you so much for being here to worship Jesus with us today. Hey there, Auditorium 2 across the way, and howdy if you're watching online on Facebook or, or YouTube or wherever. Um, and if you are here with us on campus today and you are visiting, uh, extra special, glad to have you. If you have um, any questions about life here at Fellowship Greenville, you can stop by our Welcome Center, which is in the Commons over here near Auditorium One, and they can answer any question that you might have about uh, how things happen around here, what we believe God is doing around here. Um, also, members and regulars, please, pretty please, go bother our friends out at Next Steps, also in the Commons over here beside Auditorium One. Um, if you want to get more involved, whether that is, is group life or you're looking for a service opportunity, uh, they would love to help you, our friends out at Next Steps. Um, Additionally, if you're visiting, one of the things that you'll find if you keep coming back and hanging out with us is that we are regularly on Sunday mornings preaching and teaching straight through usually an entire book of the Bible. We want to read the Bible the way that God gave us the Bible and we kind of we don't really want to force our agenda onto the words of the Bible. Rather, we believe that these are God given words and that they show us God's agenda for the world, especially in the gospel of Jesus. And this approach to scripture has us studying the New Testament book of Ephesians. <laughs> now, um, there is debate about some of the details of Ephesians because it was a very widely circulated letter in the first century. People were like, man, this is really good. And I'm gonna send it to my friends over here, send it to my friends over there. Um, but the very high likelihood is that Paul, the apostle Paul, uh, was a missionary for Jesus, an ambassador for Jesus, and he traveled around and he wrote this letter to his friends from a Roman prison in the early 60s of the first century, so like, like 30 years after Jesus. And you can go do your own research about the city of Ephesus, you can Google it later and, and have fun with all that, but when you do your research about Ephesus, you will quickly learn that it was not like a, a quaint small town with a nice little country church. That was not Ephesus at all. Ephesus was like, like Vegas plus Washington DC plus Miami. It was a boatload of fun, right? It was just filled with just corrupt sexuality. It, it, was, it was like this hub for uh, power hungry politics of the Roman Empire. Also people in Ephesus uh, fought over money and commerce a lot because they had a big port city there known for international trade. Also. In Ephesus, there was a vast array of deities and gods to be worshiped, Greco-Roman gods, and all of these gods had little statues, and they were all over, like downtown Ephesus in the street corner. They were in every house in every corner of the city, these little gods, and all these gods were then, in fact, we have separation of church and state, but all of the gods were tied into their politics. So in Ephesus, it was all kinds of messy. <clears throat> but for most people in Ephesus, they were just like, hey, this is life in Ephesus. Um, in fact, if you want to, you can go check it out later. But in Acts 19, we have a little picture of kind of how the church in Ephesus got started and, and, and got some roots. Um, Paul told a bunch of like these carpenter, silversmith, woodworking people in Ephesus. <coughs> they, he told them about Jesus. They started following Jesus. The problem is they were making those little gods that you would put up all over city and in every home. And so they quit making the little statues and the idols. And then most of the city of Ephesus lost their minds. It says in Acts 19 that the whole city was filled with rage and confusion, and they were like running through the streets yelling, greatest Artemis, God of the Ephesians, just like really mad about the whole thing. <clears throat> and the point is, that is the backdrop of all of this letter that Paul writes to his friends. He's, he's writing a letter to the church in that city, a city like 
that. And that makes, that makes me want to pay attention to what he's saying to believers who lived daily in that kind of cultural space. So today we will keep going in Ephesians, and today we will pick up in Ephesians chapter one. If you want to go ahead and get there in your Bibles, that will be good, great, fine, wonderful. Ephesians chapter one, and we'll get there in a few minutes. <coughs> now, um, it's no secret that um, I love hanging out with and teaching our interns every summer. We have a class for 90 minutes, three mornings a week, and this past June we did a week of classes on the church. And I started class by asking them two fill in the blank questions. I said, hey, fill it in. The church is at its worst when blank, and the church is at its best when blank. And then I, I let them respond. So this is how they responded to the first question. And I, I could feel the generation gap a little bit. I could feel the distinction because I wouldn't have immediately thought of things like this. They said, the church is at its worst when it doesn't care for the poor and learn to rest when it like reeks of consumerism. They also said the church is at its worst when it's exclusive and legalistic and it doesn't call out hypocrisy or it's at its worst when it's showy and flashy and tries to run like a business or when it over promises and under delivers. And um, a lot of these examples that they gave uh, included elaboration like personal stories and, and so at this point, we had a couple people in class on the verge of tears because these critiques, their, their answers, their responses to that first question, they weren't detached. They had personally um, felt <clears throat> affected by the things that we were talking about. So we took a few minutes to talk about that hurt, but then as we shifted to question two, I asked, uh, I asked my friend Bella Bible, uh, what was her primary thought about the church? Bella's helping us lead songs today in Auditorium 2. Um, this summer we aff uh, affectionately named her Bellaship Greenville because why not? That's just laying there. I gotta take that. Sorry, Bella. <clears throat> uh, that's just right there. And the reason I asked Bella Bible for her thoughts about the church is because she didn't grow up in church and she's only been a Christian for a couple few years and her answer put me on the verge of tears. She said, I really hate that the church can be like this because to me the church has been like family, like real mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. The church is like home to me. And then that led other people to chime in and they say, yeah, yeah, the church is at its best when it acts like a family, when it's unified, when it cares for the vulnerable and broken in its, in its midst and without and outside of it. The church is at its best when it's, when it's scripture focused and when it's God focused and not when it's man-centered, like just self-esteem kind of projects. The church is at its best when it's joyfully and humbly and graciously evangelistic, when it participates in God's mission with him and when it's people legitimately love loving one another. Now, obviously, this latter part of the conversation was way more hopeful, but then the discussion kind of led us to a different question, and it's the one that I want to put before us today. I'm not sure if you know this, but God does not have a plan B for reaching the world with the message of his saving love. God has one plan, and that is, his church, empowered by his spirit, carrying and embodying the message of his son, Jesus. So, whether we like it or not, we are God's people for the world. Now, that's not the question. There's no, no debating that in the Bible. This is the question. What do we need to, like, be or do or think or believe to actually live like we are God's plan for the world? What's required out of us? Or in terms of the questions that I ask the interns, how do we live as God's people in such a way that things like consumerism and legalism and hypocrisy are put to death 
And instead, we can be known for being a welcoming family, a a scripture-soaked people, a people who care for the broken and the vulnerable and who joyfully join God on his mission. Like, how do we get there? And yes, I'm talking about Christians in general, but I'm also talking about us as a church at Fellowship Greenville. We're saying that Ephesians is about God's plan for God's church revealed. Yes, yes, yes. Well, what does it mean for us to be God's plan A in Greenville and around the world? And I've, I've heard the suggestions. Some are more direct. Some are kind of under, the bre- under the, your breath. But it's like, we need to be more political or no, we need to be less political. We need to be more theological. We need to be less theological. We have way too many programs that distracts. We don't have enough programs. We can't get involved. Well, we should speak out on fragile cultural issues. No, 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 don't speak out. Quote, unquote, just preach the gospel. Like I've heard everything from both sides on that repeatedly. But my question is, what what would the Bible have to say to us at this juncture, at this intersection? And if Ephesus, listen, was as wild and and influential of a place as history seems to indicate, then I'm sure they faced similar siren songs and temptations to quick fixes. So if Ephesus was really that crazy, what does Paul have to say to them about being God's plan A for the world? And then as we begin to answer that, then we can start to answer the question for ourselves. And this is our question for today. How should we live as God's people in the world and for the world? That's what's on the table for us today That's our question. Uh, Maybe we could nuance it just slightly. What is God's strategy for God's church revealed? How should we live as God's people in the world and for the world? And today, we will be helped along uh, with our question by Ephesians chapter one, verses 15 through 23. That's our passage today. Ephesians one, verses 15 through 23. And uh, the majority of this passage right here that we're getting ready to look at is Paul praying for his friends in Ephesus, and he prays the answer to our question. And so that's why we need to pay attention to what he's saying. Uh, Let's check it out. Let's start in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Here we go. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of this great might, he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Now, here's how Paul is going to help us with our question. He gives one main answer with three results, and then he gives one main example of the answer, also with three results. So a main response with three qualifiers, and then a main example also with three qualifiers. And we'll get there in a second, but before we do, let's just rewind for one moment. 
Last week, Charlie waded into the deep waters of Ephesians by talking about worship. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is a 202-word single sentence in Greek, and it says time and time again that we exist for the praise of his glory so that we would make a big deal about the grace of God in Jesus. And now, this week, verses 15 through 23, is a single sentence in Greek that's made up of 170 words, and I wish I could text message Paul and go, hey bro, take a deep breath, chill out, like here's your friend, his name's Kama, just use it, help us out, like you're killing me. Okay, so part of this is that this is tough to understand because we don't write like that. But in Paul's brain, these two monster sentences are connected. Look at verse 15. Look at the first phrase. Paul begins with, for this reason. So in his mind, these two passages are connected like this. He wants the vertical worship of the first half of chapter one to be internalized, and he wants his friends to live like God is truly gracious and glorious, and that's what he's praying for them in the last half of chapter one. And so he starts by saying, hey man, I thank God that you guys love each other. I'm hearing about your faith, but I am praying for you and I'm praying one main thing for you. Look at the middle of verse 17. <clears throat> this is Paul's primary prayer request. That God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, <clears throat> let's start with tensions because they're always fun. The tension here is, Paul, hey, Paul just said in verses 13 and 14, hey, you got the Holy Spirit. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. You've got the Holy Spirit, period. And then he goes, now I'm praying that God would give you the spirit of wisdom. So come on, Paul, help me out. Why the tension? Well, Paul knows exactly what he's doing, and this is the tension that we're talking about. Look, look, look. Hey, we are, period, God's people for the world. We don't act like, live like God's people for the world. What's that? That's attention. <clears throat> Paul's doing the same thing. We have the fullness of the Spirit. You don't always live in accordance with the fullness of the Spirit. He's making you feel that tension. He knows exactly what he's doing. Um, in fact, the original language, the Greek, doesn't say that God would give you the spirit of wisdom, etc. Paul actually prays that they would have spirit wisdom. That's, <clears throat> I mean, if you're to do it really literally, hey, God, I pray that you would give them Spirit wisdom, that's what it says. And so the primary thing that Paul prays for them is the primary answer to our question this morning. Let's say it like this. Really simply, wisdom is how we should live as God's people in the world and for the world. And we're gonna unpack this, but this is Paul's basic prayer request. And it's the basic answer to our question. Wisdom is how we should live as God's people in the world and for the world. And this means not more rules, not less rules. Not more politics, not less politics, but a God-given, spirit-wrought, culturally aware wisdom. A, a, a dependent yet confident kind of discernment that can't come from us, so it has to be a divine gift. That's what Paul is praying for his friends. Now, um, <clears throat> we're gonna keep going back. Think about the woodworkers and the silversmiths and the carpenter people in Ephesus who came to trust Jesus for eternal life. It's not just that the whole city of Ephesus couldn't stand them because they weren't gonna make their dumb little God statues, idols anymore. It's not that. Think about who these people were and what they were doing. What were they now gonna do for work? Like, how are they gonna have income anymore? Like, they're, almost their entire clientele base just dried up overnight. So what are these people going to do? Now, I'll tell you what we'll be tempted to do. I'm gonna do the church thing and I'm gonna be faithful to Jesus and then I'm not gonna let any of my Jesus friends know that I'm still carving away some like Artemis statues over here going, hey, give it to me under the table. Like that would be, an e that would be a very easy temptation. <clears throat> so what is required out of these people who are caught in this fragile place? I'll tell you what's required. Next level wisdom that is way past artisan skill or decent business sense. 
And that's why Paul prays this for his friends, this one dominant request, wisdom. Now, let's just appropriate this um, in our world today, in, in Greenville. And I don't know about you, but I have these conversations. <clears throat> I'm, having a, I'm having them a lot. How do you love people who grew up in or around legalistic, materialistic, and or abusive churches? Like how are you supposed to show them <clears throat> that we are God's plan A for the world if they have left their faith and they have left the church and they got pretty good reason to do so? Like, what do we do? The hypocrisy they've witnessed, the bigotry they've seen in church people, and here's the deal, those people and those churches that they came from, they probably profess a lot of the same things we do, so what do we need? What do we have to do? We are in desperate need of gracious, patient, listening wisdom, because it's precisely how we should live as God's people in the world and for the world. <laughs> now, uh, some of you want to talk about the combination of wisdom. Well, it says here it's wisdom and revelation, and that's what it says, and that's a fair take. Um, it's listed second, so it modifies the wisdom. And more importantly here, revelation isn't some new and wild-eyed thing that's just happening to you for your personal experience. That's not what Paul is talking about here. Some people want to make it what he's talking about here. It's not like God is telling you a secret, and he's like, don't tell anybody. That's not, that's not what Paul is praying for his friends. Rather, when Paul uses this word, He's talking about the definitively new thing that God has done in Jesus, that Jesus is God's ultimate revealing of himself, disclosing of himself. And so, the wisdom that we need can't come from us, has to be a gift, it has to be spirit-given and Christ-saturated, Christ-focused, and that's what Paul is praying for his Ephesian friends. <clears throat> and when, they're, when they have that kind of wisdom, their eyes will be open and they'll start to see things more clearly. <clears throat> so that's the main answer, look, wisdom, and now he gives three results of wisdom. Look in verse 18, three results of wisdom. Look, uh, the middle of the verse, 18. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power. <clears throat> so um, if we're rightly living in wisdom, it will lead to us knowing three things. The hope of his calling, the riches of his glory, and the greatness of his power. And each of these three, they have their own little qualifiers, but uh, simply put, if we are doing divine discernment, it results in the hope of his calling, us knowing the hope of his calling, the riches of his glory, and the greatness of his power. <clears throat> and at this juncture, you're very welcome because it could be a seven-hour sermon, a really crisp seven-hour sermon, and we could take our time and look at how the ideas of hope and calling work together in juxtaposition towards one another in all of Paul's literature, and then we could come back here and it, like plug that in, and we could do the same thing with the ideas of glory and inheritance and how they run parallel and in proximity to one another in all of Paul's literature, and then we could come back and we could do all of that. <clears throat> We're not going to. You can do it on your own. It's fun, I promise. But here's what I want to do. I want to tell you that all three of these qualifiers together, I think they suggest something to us. These three results, these three qualifiers of wisdom, <clears throat> they challenge the way that we normally conceive of wisdom. So these three things together, they are, they're pushing on us to, to, to think about wisdom differently. Now, here's what I mean. When we think about our need for wisdom, this is what we do. Man, you know, as a parent, I really have to walk this tightrope, you know, because I have to, my kids gotta know that there are consequences for their actions. They just have to know that, that's life. But at the same time, my kids have to know that I love them unconditionally, no matter what. So what do I do? How do I walk the tightrope? Yeah, I agree, that's tough. 
Or this is what we do. We go, you know, I go to the gym every week and I know there's people in the gym and I see them almost all the time and I know that they don't know Jesus and so how am I supposed to do grace and truth to these people? Because I hear their conversations and I know that they think that most Christians are head in the sand, anti-science, anti-intellectuals. What should I say to them? Because Jesus isn't like that and I don't roll like that either. So how do I engage with them? You're like, I need wisdom for right there. And I go, yeah, you probably do. Or some of you are just like, I need some good motivational posters, some proverbs, some principles, some tweets that I can just hold on to, to just generally make me better at life, better at family, better at money, better at relationships. I need all that stuff. Like my life is in pursuit of just a few good tweets so I can feel like I know what I'm doing just a little bit better. And look, I'm gonna tell you, I don't think that's, I don't think that's wrong necessarily. But hear, hear me very clearly, all that stuff's important. All of it is balanced and thoughtful parenting, living out Christ before others, efficient principles for everyday life. All of that stuff is important. <clears throat> but, and here, here's the but, none of these things come to Paul's mind when he thinks about what his Ephesian friends need most for living in their fragile cultural space. Instead, all of his wisdom qualifiers are vertical they're all about knowing God more. Look, the hope of his calling, the riches of his glory, the greatness of his power. When it comes to wisdom, the, the most discerning and prudent thing that you can do is be just utterly blown away that he loves you and he has called you to himself. The best thing that you can be do is just be absolutely perplexed and befuddled at mercy that he has called you, that he loves you, that you belong to him, and that he loves showing mercy to you. And people who don't know Jesus, please get this. <clears throat> they don't primarily need to see you as relevant, cool, or trendy, or faddish, or fashionable, or influential, or networked, or wealthy, or put together, or intellectual, or able to defend your sociopolitical preferences on Facebook. No, they need to see you dumbfounded by the riches of his glorious grace. They need to see you stand in awe of forgiveness. Do you do that or do you presume? They need to see, this is what they need to see. They need to see you happy and humble at the immeasurable greatness of his power because he chose you before the foundation of the world to be his sons and daughters. This is vertical wisdom Paul is praying about and talking about. We need a wisdom like that a wisdom that sees things from the perspective of God's love rather than whatever we think is our most immediate functional need. Hey, if we are God's plan A for the world, we need to be ever grateful for <clears throat> and impressed with his kindness toward us. We're never supposed to get over that. And this is what Paul is nudging us to see that wisdom, first of all, is vertical. So let's say it like this. Wisdom, <clears throat> wisdom that will change the world, seeks a heavenly view of our earthly reality. God's perspective. Hey, you and I can't see the way that all things are supposed to work together, be together, look together. We're 30 feet, he's 30,000 feet and way bigger than that. Wisdom that will change the world seeks a heavenly view of our earthly reality. It seeks to know the eternal God before it seeks to engage our temporal situation. This is what Paul is praying for his friends. Again, he, he wants for them to have a heavenly view on their earthly reality that seeks to know God before it seeks to really, really understand their situation. Basically, he wants them to have an eternal perspective. He wants them to be inundated with a sense of the glorious inheritance that is theirs. He, he wants his friends to know that hope is the purest nostalgia and that they can't live without God's point of view on whatever they're facing. 
Charlie's line last week from the Talmud was, was so perfect. Um, we tend to see things not as they are, but as we are. That's really thoughtful. And Paul knows that a God-entranced wisdom can help us see things for what they really are because we can't get there on our own. But Paul also knows that this can feel a little bit backwards. He knows that most people, when they think of wisdom, wisdom's supposed to have some practical, hands-on knack to it. Yet, the foundation to all wisdom is first and foremost to be captivated by God, and that's where the real power of wisdom is. And that is the kind of language that Paul starts to use next. He starts to use language about power. So here we go. Paul prays one main thing with three results. Um, And then he gives one main example also with three results. So what is the climactic example or proof of wisdom in Paul's mind? The answer is, look at verse 20. The answer is the resurrection. Verse 20, this worshipful wisdom that leads to power, God worked it out in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So that's the main answer, proof, and example to Paul's uh, uh, wisdom um, is, is the resurrection. Now, it's qualified in three ways, the resurrection is. Three things happen after that. Verse 20, the middle of verse 20, God seated Jesus at his right hand. Verse 22, he put all things under his feet. Also, verse 22, he made him as head over his body, the church. Okay, so just to make sure we're all on the same page, how should we live as God's people in the world and for the world? Wisdom is the big answer, and that leads to knowing the hope of his calling, the riches of his glory, the greatness of his power. And these things are exemplified most in the resurrection, by which God gives Jesus a seat, puts all things under his feet, and crowns him as head of the church. Now, um, that's satisfying. You know why? Because 170 words in one sentence is a lot. And it's just, it moves a lot, so that, that helps me. But if I'm honest, as Bible theology nerd snob guy and as one of your pastors, I sat back this week studying and I was like, okay, but this is still as clear as mud as, as far as how wisdom relates to power, <clears throat> relates to resurrection. It just feels a little odd. So how is the resurrection and its results, how is the resurrection a climactic picture of wisdom? That's a sub-question that we have to ask. <clears throat> and here we have to entertain for just a few minutes a very strange biblical idea that a lot of people don't know what to do with and a lot of people don't even know about. Um, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Now look at verse 21, verse 21, Ephesians 1. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. So what is Paul talking about when he uses those four terms? Most people go, oh, that's just a really weird way to talk about angels and demons. Um, I don't think so. Um, And even if it is, then your view of angels and demons come from probably really bad movies and not the Bible. Um, So what does Paul mean when he says rule, authority, power, and dominion? When Paul uses this fourfold phrase, he is talking about a Hebrew idea that is very peculiar to us, that God has a heavenly council through which he intended to delegate his reign, kind of like with humans, but not on earth, in the heavenly places. And this council was to look over all the nations and their affairs, all under God's eye and his agenda, uh, of course. But parallel to humanity rejecting God, some in this divine council did the same. And to talk about that entire council, both the ones who rejected God's rule and the ones who are still willingly under God's rule, the New Testament writers say things like, all rule, authority, power, and dominion. And if you read in theological circles a lot, the shorthand for these ideas is just called the powers. That's what they're often called, the powers, and they're often, uh, it's often negative. 
And here's the kicker. It's bad enough that apart from God's grace and mercy on my own, we, uh, I am a sinner and I sin. We are sinners and we sin. We're sinful by nature and nurture, if you will. But this quiet theme in the Bible of the powers shows that we are also lured and enticed by forces outside of us. You know the first time the word sin is used in the Bible, Genesis 4, it says sin is crouching at my door and its desires to master me. That's not something in, inside of you. That's a different thing. <clears throat> and one of the main ways that these powers manifest themselves in the Bible is in sociopolitical systems and isms and power structures. Best example of this in the Bible is Babylon. Hey, we're gonna build a name for ourselves. We don't need God. We can do socio-cultural political stuff on our own with Babylon. Another great example of this in the Old Testament is how Egypt <clears throat> enslaved Israel. In fact, there's nothing new under the sun, so just buckle up and read it later. Exodus chapter one includes two things, systemic racism and systemic abortion in that order. Both were commanded by Pharaoh in Exodus one. And when Paul thinks about that, he calls it the principalities and the powers. So let's get back in Ephesus. When these carpenters, these woodworking dudes, when these silversmith people, <clears throat> when they started to follow Jesus, question, did that disrupt the political system of Ephesus? <clears throat> or did it, did it kind of overturn and mess with their economic system? Or did it bother their systemic religiosity that held them captive? It's my favorite answer, it's yes. And watch, <clears throat> when you go to Acts 19 and you see everything that's happening and all the Ephesians are confused and mad and they're all yelling, great is Artemis, God of the Ephesians. That's because Artemis is part of the powers and she's getting shot at, right? That's what's happening right here. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 1:21 that Jesus is seated above every name that is named. Now, <clears throat> this, the power stuff, I know it's different, so let me try to bring it together. <clears throat> it is Jesus' resurrection his undoing of sin and death and hell that exalts him above the powers, whatever their names are. He sets his feet up on them. And that means that for those who are following Jesus, worshipful wisdom includes two things. One, we are no longer identified with the powers because Jesus has broken their grip on humanity. And secondly, because we don't belong to them and we don't bow to them, we're supposed to now, I'm supposed to now live distinctly in the world and for the world so that the world can look at me and go, hey, they're not enslaved to something. They have a little bit more freedom than I do. There's a system that they're not bowing to. The world's supposed to see that in our lives. They're supposed to see that in my life. I don't live for the weekend. I don't claw for the almighty dollar. I don't belong to a political regime. I don't even kneel at the invisible shrine of some consumeristic Christianity. I bow before King Jesus because in the cross and resurrection, he broke the back of the powers, right? Now here's the deal. Here's the wisdom part of this. The relational and worshipful wisdom Paul is praying for his friends <clears throat> requires exponentially more trust and dependence on God than the ease of living for the powers. The wisdom that he wants for them is aware that, look, more is at stake than what meets the eye. It's a heavenly perspective, right? This is why Jesus is seated in the heavenly places in verse 20. <clears throat> so this wisdom here, the wisdom that Paul wants, the vertical wisdom, the worshipful wisdom, it knows, hey, 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 if you live for an earthly system, you'll probably have a lot more experiential clarity. If you, do, if you do sell your soul to a political party, you'd probably feel a little bit more confident. If you do think that money will fix all your problems, at least you have obvious metrics for success. 
But guess what Paul knows? Guess what that wisdom also knows? That the supposed clarity will include lies, that the feeling of confidence, confidence will include anger, and that the pursuit of money will end up using people instead of loving them. If you think that's scary, then I don't know what to do with this next thing I'm gonna tell you. One of the last pictures in the entire Bible, in the great book of Revelation, is where Babylon the Great finally goes down. And Babylon represents the powers, right? Genesis 11, the powers. And right before her final fall, this is the very end of Revelation, a voice from the heavenlies, no shock, says, come out of her, my people. Come out of her, my people, lest you partake in her sins and lest you share in her plagues. And we're gonna be mature. If you heard sexual overtones in that, then you're absolutely hearing it correctly. And John intended that in the book of Revelation, if you go read it. You know why? Because intimacy with the powers never Never yields life and only death, but sometimes we're duped to think, come out of her, my people. Sometimes we're duped to think that it is. And Paul's prayer for his friends in Ephesians 1 is that they would be so mesmerized and blown away by the gospel of Jesus that they can discern the way, ways that the powers are at work in the world and then stiff arm them and reject them. Paul wants them to live so distinctly as the body of Christ in the world. That's what he wants for them. That's what he longs for them. And for myself personally, and as one of your pastors, that's what I long for us to do here at Fellowship Greenville, to live so distinctly in the world that people have to pay attention. So how do we synthesize all this power stuff? Because it's a bit strange. We're going to go a little abstract, and we'll work it out. Here's how we do it. <coughs> Gospel wisdom believes that the bigger battles have already been fought and won by Jesus. So when we talk about the powers, Jesus has been victorious over them because of his resurrection. So gospel wisdom believes that the bigger battles, the, one about, the ones about sin, death, hell, and eternity, the bigger battles have already been fought and won by Jesus. <clears throat> now, I hope, hope you're reading that and seeing that and thinking about that from a different perspective because I know it can sound simple. <clears throat> but think about how much this sets you free to not have to win. Now you no longer have to feel the burden of solving the epidemic of hypocrisy in the entire American church. You don't have to wholesale fix materialism or legalism. Rather, because of his resurrection and his heavenly enthronement, Jesus has emerged victorious over our true enemies, sin, death, hell, and the powers. And real wisdom means living in light of that. Now we're set free to be God's family, to be Christ's body, loving one another, caring for the vulnerable and those broken by the powers, joyfully joining God on his mission. This is exactly what it means to be the church, to graciously be an extension of divine wisdom and resurrection power. This is how we live as God's plan A in the world and for the world. We rest assured knowing that the biggest battles are won and we press on not alarmed or blown away at the smaller temporal fights that weigh us down and face us because Jesus understands those battles because he won the ultimate war of which they are mere echoes. And so this is what we have to do. We have to look to Jesus in faith and for discernment as we engage the world around us with his love. That's what we have to do. More is going on than we can see. We need a heavenly perspective. And Jesus went through death, came out the other side, and now he's reigning at the Father's right hand. We need to come to him in faith and for discernment or we don't have a shot to live out this wisdom rightly. Now, uh, really briefly, 
some of you still want wisdom to be practical and down to earth. And I, um, I understand those desires because I'm on that team. Well, tell me what to do. I get that. Um, but that's not where Paul is right now. Um, but we do, it might be nice to have a little bit more of a practical push. And so here we go. Paul begins and ends Ephesians with language about the powers. It's not a sub-theme in Ephesians. And this can be your practical wisdom if you want it. And if you grew up in church and you got your VBS gold stars, then maybe you can see this in a fresh light. I'm talking about the armor of God from Ephesians 6. If anybody had the little silver armor of God thing growing up, that was so gangster, by the way. This is like that scene in a new light. So here's a practical, a practical offshoot for wisdom for you. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, brothers and sisters, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. <clears throat> Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So what do you need to do? You need to take up the whole armor of God that you can withstand in the evil day. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on readiness given by the gospel of shalom, of peace. And in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of evil, of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation, the sword of spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and all supplication. To that end, Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. <clears throat> and also for me, the words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly like I ought to. So <clears throat> there's your to-do list. Put on the armor of God. And if you don't think that's practical enough, then you have to take it up with God, okay? <clears throat> Put on the armor of God every day. Think about those things. Consider those things. And you know what you'll notice if you look at the bookends of Ephesians with the power stuff? What Paul prays for them in chapter one, he wants them to live out through the book and he wants, to live them, he wants them to live it out in chapter six with the armor of God and then he wants them to pray the same thing for him. Hey Paul, we're praying for you that all this will be the case for you too. <clears throat> but now here's the key. This is the thing that's underneath all of this. All of this <clears throat> is built on the rock solid, immovable foundation of Jesus as crucified, resu resurrected, and reigning <clears throat> at the Father's right hand. Here's the deal. All earthly wisdom <clears throat> is trying to distract you from the inevitability of death. It's trying to use different schemes and plans and mechanisms and eat this and drink this and be this and think like this. It's trying to do so much to get you to avoid death. All the evil powers are trying to make you think that you can cheat death, outlast death, and not be scared of death. <clears throat> but here's the thing. Here's the, underneath it all, Jesus willingly took the sting of death into himself for us. He broke the power's ultimate power, that is death. The payment for our sins, the only power that could break the evil ones was his, the power of his self-giving love for us. He is the only one. Jesus is the only one who has perfectly lived in the world and for the world. He is the wisdom that was with God and was God in the beginning that became flesh and dwelt among us. And because of his resurrection and reign at the right hand of the Father, he is the only one who can give us heaven's perspective on what we face. And that means that he alone has the right, he has the right to break the powers because of his resurrection, because he has won the biggest battle there is, draining death of its power and rising to life. 
because of that, here's the deal. We can trust him above all. We can bow to him above all, serve him above all, because it's all under his feet. And now we worship him and adore him and seek him and imitate him and pray to him and sing to him and delight in him and obey him and pursue him and praise him and honor him and follow him. And that's where we find life. And that is where the church is at its best. When we behold Jesus, worship Jesus, enjoy Jesus, rather than try to practically do things because we're participating in earthly systems. We worship Jesus and because he has broken the powers of sin and death. That's when the church is at its best, when we rightly cling to Christ, crucified, resurrected, and reigning at the Father's right hand. Now how do we do that? I don't know, I, I think that's why we got the rest of the book right? But the wisdom required is not first of all a reflex strategy for worldly activity. It's a worshipful wisdom that looks to Jesus because he has broken the powers of sin, death, and evil, and hell. The powers. He's become victorious over them. So Fellowship Greenville, that is super, 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 super really good news that Jesus is king over all that. And I hope today that you're trusting him for real life. And it's also good news, Fellowship Greenville, to hear of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. And I don't cease to give thanks for you and I make mention of you in my prayers all the time. And I pray that God would give us this kind of wisdom, this kind of resurrection power. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, would you give us a holy and special wisdom to know you and make you known? Please, 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 Holy Spirit. Would you let us be able to see and recognize when the powers are at work and then immediately not fix it, but trust Jesus even harder. Grant us to know and feel and sense the power of the resurrection working in us and working through us. Please, Holy Spirit, give us a wonderful and glorious and vivid picture of Jesus with sin and death as hell and hell under his feet, reigning as rescuer, reigning as king. And may that picture cause us to be more faithful to you more faithful to the mission. Please, please, please. Jesus, we love you so much. We praise you and we thank you. You're the best. Amen.